Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Right, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards faithful, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their share, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Praise be to God. All right. Man, it seems so nice right up until you get to that last verse, and then you're like, whoa, wait a minute. What just happened? Well, we're going to get into that today. I don't know if you know that there's a war happening right now in the Tigray region of Ethiopia. has been since November of 2020. You can add this on top of all the other conflicts we've heard about, the ongoing conflicts in Syria, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, that though it's at a quiet point right at the moment, um, will inevitably flower again and into war. Um, if you look around our world, we, we live in a world torn up by conflict. And all of these conflicts are unjust. Right? There's no war that's ever been fought that was fully just. Even, even the great wars, right? World War II, where <coughs> there is no question that uh, Nazi Germany and the Axis powers were, were evil and needed to be stopped. And yet the very act of prosecuting a war is an unjust thing. Inevitably, the innocent, inevitably, the, those who are not involved in the conflict get stuck in the middle, and they're the ones who ultimately really suffer. Even when the, there's, a, there's clearly a right and wrong side, and in so many of our conflicts, there aren't clear right and wrong sides, but even when there is a clear right and wrong side, inevitably, those who have nothing to do with the conflict get stuck in the middle of it. War is by its very nature unjust. Our conflicts, because we are human, because we are sinful, broken, fallen people, our conflicts are inevitably unjust, and they hurt the people that they were intended to help. They end up harming the people they were intended to help. Even if the end is a good thing, I would never argue that the end of World War II was a bad thing. It was a war that needed to be prosecuted, and yet the people who suffered the most were the ones stuck in the middle were the ones who had no stake in the conflict, who didn't create it for themselves, who didn't ask for it, who didn't want it. 
That's the nature of our world. Almost everything we do is tinged with injustice. Almost everything we do because we're sinful human beings, it's impacted by our sin. It's impacted by our own brokenness. The closest best relationships you have, you have done something to hurt someone in them. And someone has done something to you. In fact, the closer you are, the more likely it is that you have hurt one another. We're in this room right now with some people who are closer to me than anybody ever in my life. And I guarantee you they have been hurt by me. My wife has been hurt by me. My brother has been hurt by me. Some of you who I love dearly have been hurt by me. Why? Because I'm a sinful human being, and no matter how much I try, and no matter how righteous I get, inevitably, my sin will impact my relationships, and it will cause pain. And when we amplify that up the chain, when we amplify that up to systems of power, and to governments, and to organizations, and to corporations, and whatever other group you can imagine, when we amplify that individual personal sinfulness up the chain of organization, then the, the power that we wield to harm people only becomes that much greater. The power that we wield as groups and as organizations only becomes greater the larger our organization gets because all of those individual sinful people get together and they take sinful action and unjust action. And that's the system of the world. That's the cycle of the world. That's the cycle that Jesus came to interrupt. That's the cycle that Jesus came to confront and to stop. But we know that right now, in the meantime, between the resurrection of Jesus and his return that we've been talking about in Revelation, we still live in this middle ground where the kingdom of God is pushing back against the kingdoms of the world, where the kingdom of God is pushing back against the unjustness and the sinfulness of the world, and we're trying to make our world look more like the kingdom of God, and yet... Sinful humans still have all kinds of power to do sinful things to people. And so we live in this middle ground. We live in this in-between time. And and that's where the people that the Apostle John and Jesus were writing to in the Revelation. They were writing to a people who had been redeemed by Jesus, over whom Jesus was ruling as king, who had been transformed, whose community looked like the kingdom of God that we want to look like. They were generous. They were caring for one another, sharing one another's burdens, living together, making sure that everybody had what they needed to survive and to live in the world. And yet they were living also under the thumb of an oppressive government. They were living under the thumb of of people who didn't want them, didn't like them, and cut them off from all of the means that they had to provide for themselves. That's where the church was when John is writing to it. And that's where these people are like, wait a minute, I'm living under the reign of King Jesus. I've got this identity. I'm a child of God. I'm a brother or a sister to Jesus Christ. I am empowered. And yet, it seems like the state has all the power here. And yet, it seems like the forces of evil have all the authority here. And they are arrayed against me. And they are pushing down on me. What does it mean to live in the victory of Jesus under the thumb of an oppressive government? What does it mean to live in the victory of Jesus when everything in my life is falling apart because I follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus when I am an oppressed person? What does the victory of Jesus look like in that situation? And that's what Revelation has been about. 
It's been pointing us to the final victory of Jesus and how to live for and like him in the midst of a world that is ruled by human sinfulness. In the midst of a world where sinful human beings have so much power to put down and to harm one another and they use it in that way all too often. And that's where we we end up here in chapter 20. And so, this, this, is a, this is a weird place, right? There's a lot of arguments about these first verses of chapter 20, about the millennium. We read about this thousand years, that Jesus comes back, he binds up Satan, and then Jesus rules and reigns for a thousand years, and his people rule with him. The righteous people rule with Jesus for a thousand years, and then at the end of the thousand years, the devil is released for a short time to wage war against the world, and then he's put down and thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet went last week. Now, that is all super confusing. And this is why for the 2,000 plus years since Jesus rose again, the church has argued about what this means, about this 1,000 years. Is this 1,000 years uh, right now? Is it the time between Jesus' resurrection and his coming back? Is it symbolic? Or is it like a, a, thousand, a literal thousand-year period after Jesus returns and then he reigns for a thousand years and then he releases the devil for some unforeseeable reason and allows the devil to rule and reign and then puts him down finally? Or is the thousand years uh, a time that we work to where like humanity just gets better and better, the kingdom of God becomes more influential, and then eventually we work ourselves into this thousand-year period of peace and prosperity where Jesus is ruling and reigning? When, when is the thousand years? What's the thousand years? I'm not going to answer that for you. I mean, I know what I think, right? I think that the thousand years is symbolic, that it's the time that we are in now, that Jesus is ruling and reigning, and because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the world and because of the presence of the kingdom of God pushing back on the powers of evil, that the powers of evil are restrained for the time that we wait Jesus' return, and that that's where we're living now. But hey, if you believe Jesus comes back and then he establishes a thousand-year reign, that's cool. If you think that the kingdom of God is going to become so influential and persuasive and pervasive in the world that we're going to work to this point where, where we are the kingdom of God, and then after a thousand years after that, Jesus comes back, that's cool too. I think there's a bigger point here, and I think when we quibble over the when and the how and the what, just as we have looked at all through Revelation, when we look into and we quibble over these tiny little interpretations and, and we get angry about them and we let them kind of define who we are and how we understand Jesus, we miss the big picture. We miss the big point. And here's the big picture of this. These first verses in chapter 21 through 6, when we're reading about these thousand years that Jesus reigns, here's what I think is really being communicated. God is in charge of the timeline. No matter what it looks like right now, no matter what it looks like, no matter, no matter how hard it feels to wait on Jesus now, no matter what it may look like out in the world as it looks like the powers and the principalities are, are ruling and reigning and, and bringing oppression upon God's people, no matter how difficult the world is to look in, God sets the timeline. Not you, not me, not the evil forces of the world, not sin, nothing. God is the one who determines times and seasons. God is the one who determines when Jesus will return, when all things will be made right, and it will be done in his good timing because he is the good and right judge. He is the good and right ruler. He is the only king with the authority to set those times. 
And so for us, as we look out at a broken world, as we look at a world in conflict, as we look at a world where injustice reigns and rules, we must remember that our God has the final word. That Jesus Christ has the final word. No one else. No one supersedes him. No one gets to tell him when it's time. Not even you and me. So even in our frustration, even as we look out at the pain of the world and we long for his coming back, we don't get to tell him when it's time. We must wait patiently on our good and right and righteous God to make that determination. And we must trust that when he does, it will be the right thing. Because all that our God does is righteous and holy. All that he does is good. God's never made a mistake in all of his existence. Everything he does is with purpose and according to his holiness and to his righteousness. In the meantime, we struggle against the principalities of the world. In the meantime, we struggle against the sinfulness of humanity. We struggle against those systems of injustice and oppression that exist. We struggle against the individual sinfulness of ourselves and of our neighbors. In the meantime, we have to continue the fight. In the meantime, we get to continue to be faithful witnesses to Jesus in everything. And we get to, as a church, show the world a little glimpse of what it's like when Jesus really does rule and reign. If we are living as we ought to live, if we are living up to our potential as followers of Jesus, if we are living truly empowered by God's Holy Spirit, then we will be the community that the world longs to be. We will be the community that everyone longs for. We'll be the community that looks like the heaven that is to come. My deepest desire is that when we gather together, whether it's here on Sunday morning or at someone's house or any place that Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ gather together is a little glimpse of heaven. And then anytime someone comes and visits and joins this community and is part of this community, they leave going, oh man, that must be what it's like to be with Jesus. That must be what it's like to live in heaven. That must be what it's like to be in the presence of God all the time. That's our privilege and calling as a church. And we get to do that based on the righteous judgment of our God, knowing that he sets the times and seasons and he will do what is right and good. And then we come to the second section in chapter 20 where there's this judgment before the throne of God, where everybody is now brought before the throne of God and is judged. And we read here that earth and heaven fled from God's presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So here God is on his throne, and he's calling the world to account. So Jesus has come back. He's, he's defeated the devil. He's defeated Satan and thrown him into the lake of fire. So now there's no power of evil in the world. But we learn here that the devil isn't the final enemy. In fact, according to 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul says, 
the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. You see, according to the Bible, death is the true enemy of humanity. We weren't meant to die. We weren't meant to experience death. We were meant to live with our God forever. We were meant to enjoy his presence forever. We weren't meant to to disintegrate. We weren't meant to dissolve. We we weren't meant uh, to, to fall apart. We were meant to remain whole and complete forever in the presence of our God, in the perfect, holy, undiluted presence of God. That's what we were intended for. And the greatest enemy we face is not even the devil, not even the forces of evil. The greatest enemy we face is death. It comes for us all, and we know that it is not a right and holy part of life. No matter how many times people will try to tell you, death is just the transition. It's just the next part of life. Death is just a natural process. It's not. It was never intended for us. We were not meant to die. And we know it. We know it in our bones. We know it in our heart of hearts. We we long for life and life eternal. We long for goodness and holiness. We long for a life that doesn't end because we weren't made to die. And yet death comes for us all. That is the consequence of our brokenness. That is the consequence of our sin. And here at the throne of God, when God is calling not only all humanity to account to judge them, but all of creation, heaven and earth and hell and Hades and death itself, God is calling them all before him to judge them all. God says to death and to Hades, the realm of the dead, be no more. And he ends them forever. And this is the future for his people. Everyone lines up before the throne of God. And God, in his righteousness and in his goodness and in his truth, judges the hearts of every person. Whether they have been for him, whether they have been a citizen of his, or whether they have been working on behalf of the devil, on behalf of the dragon who God just destroyed. We all line up before the throne of God and we all will be judged. Now, I remember as a young man listening to pastors and preachers talk about the last judgment. And some of them would say things like, I really believe at the throne of God, he's going to have a a screen up there and he's going to show all of our sins and all of our brokenness. And and he's going to show everything that separated us from him. And he's going to judge us according to that. And everybody's going to see you. And that's hogwash. That is ridiculous. God is not in the business of shaming you for your sin. He's in the business of redeeming you from your sin. God is not in the business of shaming you for your sin. God is in the business of redeeming you from your sin. He has no interest in broadcasting to all of creation all the wrong things you ever did in your life. He doesn't want to do that to you. He wants you to be covered by the blood of Jesus and redeemed by him and made a citizen of his kingdom so that you can spend eternity with him, so he can redeem you from your sin, so he can take you away from all that would harm you and drag you down. That's what God wants for you. That's the purpose of his judgment. The purpose of his judgment is to call you righteous according to Jesus Christ, not according to you or your sin. That's why God calls us to count. And that's why our good and holy and righteous God, when we stand before him, will judge us according to whether our names are written in the book of life. That is, whether we have given ourselves to Christ or not, whether we have given ourselves to King Jesus or not. 
Whose kingdom are we a part of? Are we allegiant to Babylon or are we allegiant to King Jesus? That's all that matters in the end. That's all that matters before the throne of God. And so he calls the world to account and he judges rightly. But this judgment is not the end either. So far, we're working our way through these end events, right? And we've seen the destruction of the beast and the false prophet. That is, Rome and all the evil empires of the world and and the nationalist prophets who want you to worship the empire. And then we've seen the destruction of Satan. And you think that's the end. Like, that's God's enemy. He's destroyed. Well, now that's the end. And then we see this white throne judgment, this, this judgment where everything is brought to account before God. And we see death and Hades destroyed. And we think that's the end. But if we think those are the end, then we've missed the point because we think judgment is the end. Right? If your image of God is one where God is just up you know, in heaven with his lightning bolt in hand, angry-faced and sour-faced and ready to strike you down, then this totally fits with that image. Sure, hold on to that one, but you're wrong. That's not the God who is. That's not the God who exists. Judgment is not an end of itself. Judgment is meant to bring about perfection. Judgment is meant to bring about heaven on earth. Judgment is meant to bring about all of God's right and good purposes for you and for me and for the world. That's who our God is. God is one who delights in restoration. God is one who delights in bringing us to flourishing. God is one who wants to wipe away our sins so that we can fully enjoy all that he has given us to enjoy. That's what the judgment is about. And so after the judgment, then we see the new creation. Now, some people will tell you that at the end of all things, the world's just going to burn. The world's going to burn. It's just going to burn up, and then we're going to get a new earth. That is not here. It's not here. It's, I don't know where that comes from. It doesn't come from Revelation. What we see instead is on this earth that the new heaven and the new earth come down out of heaven. This is a, this is a symbol of God's rule and reign, God's perfect power coming down onto a sinful earth and remaking it, recreating it ridding our broken, sinful earth of all that has broken it, ridding it of all that mars it, that harms it, ridding it of everything that stands opposed to human flourishing and creating instead a perfect world and a perfect society. This is where history is headed. This is the end of all things. This is what God's purposes are for. This is where we're going. None of that other stuff was an end in itself. All of the other stuff, the destruction of the beast and the false prophet, the destruction of Satan, the destruction of hell and of death, the destruction of all of those things was meant to bring about this world, the new heaven and the new earth, this place where we can enjoy God forever, where death is destroyed, where tears are wiped away because there is no reason to mourn. Now, you don't have to take that literally, okay? There are a lot of people like, you're not going to cry in heaven. Maybe you will cry happy tears. That's great, but you won't cry sad ones because there will be nothing to be sad about. Where mourning is gone, where sickness is gone, where death is no more, where we enjoy the holy and perfect presence of our God for all of eternity, where we are truly and completely fulfilled, not overstuffed, not underfed, just satisfied. You've been there before. Have you ever been before? You ever been really satisfied? Some of us live lives of such satisfaction, we don't even recognize when we're satisfied anymore. 
And that's what drives our greed. That's what drives us wanting to get more. And that's what drives gluttony is I've been so satisfied in my life. I don't even know what satisfaction feels like. So I don't know how to be content. But some of us have experienced enough lack in our lives. Some of us have experienced enough pain and enough struggle in our lives that we know when we are truly satisfied. We know the moment where we really are just, I can breathe free. I can just rest and enjoy my life. We know what true satisfaction feels like. And when you understand what satisfaction feels like, when you really know what true contentment is, you know it's a place you don't want to leave. Just to be safe and to be held and to be fed and to be cared for and not to have a worry in the world. Truly, this is not like some holiday where I've gotten away for a week and I just left my worries behind, but they're still kind of there. This is a life truly free of worry and anxiety. This is a life truly, fully satisfied in a way that the stuff of the world can never satisfy. Maybe you're someone who has experienced great success in your life. Maybe you've had great financial success. Maybe you've done really well at your job. Maybe your family is great. Maybe you got trophies on the wall. I don't know. Like maybe you're here and you're like, Brandon, I'm not suffering. I don't even know what you're talking about when you're talking about suffering and pain here. Like my life is great. My life is good. I don't even really know why I need this, except that this is just where I've always come. Right? If that's you, then I want to assure you that, that no matter how happy you feel, no matter how satisfied you feel in life, all of that stuff, all that satisfaction, all of the the successes that you've had ultimately will not satisfy you. They, They can't. Maybe right now in this moment, you're like, yeah, I'm good. Until the next thing comes up, until you need the next thing, until the next shiny thing pops up on your computer screen, until Amazon tells you you need that other thing, or until your friend shows up with that car, whatever it is, like there's always a pursuit of more. I don't know that as humans we can imagine not having a pursuit of more, and yet that's what heaven is. I don't need any more. I don't need any more. I don't need any less. I'm happy and satisfied. And when you get to that point, that is a joy that you cannot imagine or get anywhere else. That's what heaven is about. It's about satisfaction and joy and never having to worry about another thing ever again. But also never having to worry about pursuing anything more ever again because I have absolutely everything I could ever need or want right here in my God and in his people. That's what coming to this place ought to be like. That's what gathering with Christ's church ought to be like. That's what being in this family ought to be like. I ought to be able to come here, be with you, and say, I've got everything I need in my life. I've got my God and I've got his people. I've got my God and I've got my brothers and sisters. I've got my family here. I don't need another thing. I'm satisfied. That's what the new heaven and the new earth is like. We've got a lot of brothers and sisters in the world both who are following Jesus and have not yet begun to follow Jesus, who have no idea what it's like to have no worry, have no idea what it's like to have no anxiety, have no idea what it's like to be fed, to be housed, to be clothed, to be secure, and to not have to worry about tomorrow and what's going to come. Millions and millions of people made in the image of God right now around our world have no clue what life is like for you and me on the day, on the daily basis. Have no idea 
what it is to be provided for and to be truly secure. And so in the meantime, while we live in this in-between place, what's our job? What's our mission? Our mission is to try and make our world as much like heaven as we can while we're here. So that when we get to heaven, when we finally experience this new life, this new heaven and new earth, we go, yeah, I had a taste of that. I had a little taste of that in my community. I had a little taste of that when Jesus' people were caring for me. I had a little taste of that when I was with my brothers and sisters in Jesus. I had a little taste of that when I got with his people. We should get to heaven and see echoes of heaven in earth. And right now, you and I get to be the privileged, empowered people who make that happen. In Matthew chapter 24, we get the same picture of this just judgment. Matthew chapter 24, verses 31 to the end of the chapter, Jesus is telling this parable. And he's talking exactly about this judgment that took place at the beginning of chapter, or at the end of chapter 20 of Revelation. And he says here that when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now what? distinguishes the sheep from the goats in this. When Jesus is talking about this very judgment that happens at the end of all things, what distinguishes the sheep from the goats? Well, to the sheep, Jesus says, when I was hungry, you fed me, and when I was thirsty, you gave me a drink, and when I was in prison, you came and visited me. You loved me. You cared for me. You provided for me. So, enter in. To the goats, Jesus looks and says, depart from me. I never knew you. And the goats say, wait a minute. What do you mean? Jesus said, well, you didn't, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me anything to drink. I was in prison. You didn't come visit me. You did not care for me. You did not love me. And Jesus finishes the parable by saying, anything you have done for one of the least of these, my brothers, you have done for me. God counts as service to himself anything we do for our suffering brothers and sisters in the world. God counts as service to himself any act of love that we take on behalf of someone who doesn't have what we have on behalf of someone who struggles and who suffers and who is in pain. Any act of love and service that we give, God counts as service to himself. And when we pass up the hungry, when we in our wealth and in our, in our provision pass up those who don't have, those who are uncombed, those who aren't clothed, God counts that as a mark against himself here. I mean, that's what Jesus is saying, right? Saying, I was hungry and you passed right by me. I was thirsty and you didn't care. I was in prison. Nobody came to visit me. You didn't love me. And Jesus says, but when you cared for the least, when you cared for the broken, when you cared for those who couldn't make ends meet, when you clothed the naked and you fed the hungry and you housed the homeless, that's when you loved me. And this is what Jesus is calling us to. So who are the people in Revelation 20? Who are the people who stand before and and are welcomed into the presence of God? They're the sheep. They're the ones who lived for Jesus. Now, we don't earn God's favor by living in this way. But these are the marks of the one who are redeemed by Christ. 
The one who is redeemed by Jesus, the one who truly knows him, who loves him, will love their neighbors. The one who truly loves Jesus will serve and give and care for. Now, we're not going to be perfect in this. I know I made it sound a minute ago like God is tallying up, like you fed the homeless here, but over here you didn't. And over here you fed the, you clothed the naked, but over here you didn't. And if this one outweighs this one, then you're not in. But if this one outweighs this one, then yeah, you're in. Like, that, that's not how it works. That, that's not what God is doing. What Jesus is doing here is he's laying out a vision of his kingdom people. He's laying out a vision of life for the people who follow him and who love him. And he's saying, if you love me, you will love your brothers and sisters. If you love me, you will seek the good and the well-being of the people around you. If you love me, you will seek heaven for those who are in a living hell right now. If you love me, Jesus says, you will seek my purposes. You will seek restoration and wholeness for those who are broken. That's the mission of the church in the world. That's what we do as citizens of Jesus' kingdom. That's how we push back against the evils of the world. That's how we push back against the sinfulness and the brokenness of the world. We go out and we love people. We serve them. We care for them. We give what we can. We serve as we can. We, we do what we can to push back against the brokenness of the world by loving our neighbors and doing all of it to the glory of Jesus doing all of it to the glory of God, loving the people around us and pointing to Jesus so that when anybody says, hey, that was a great thing you did, you point to Jesus. You give him the credit for it. Because it's no good if we just alleviate the physical and felt needs of our neighbors and we don't alleviate the most pressing need of their souls. We serve and we give and we love in order to example the love of Jesus in the world. We serve and we give and we love in order for heaven to push back against the hell of the world. And we serve and we give and we love so that we earn the right to point people to Jesus, the Savior of their souls, the one who will, at the judgment seat, say, welcome in my child. We give and we serve and we love in order to point people to Jesus so that they can be cared for in the here and now and they can be redeemed in the hereafter so that their temporal and eternal needs are met forever. And so church, I want to challenge you today. I want to challenge us all to find ways to serve our neighbors, not just through giving to the church and letting the church do the work, We're glad for that. We're happy for that. Thank you for your generosity. But you need to be connected to the needs around you. I need to be connected to the needs around me. I need to understand the depth of the brokenness of my world. And if I just live in my upper middle class bubble, then I'm never going to experience and understand the struggles of the people who live across the street from me, let alone downtown or across the world. I need to be embedded and engaged with the people around me and serve them in love, to know my actual neighbor and to serve them with the love of Christ. That's what we're called to. That's what it means to be a sheep in the world. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, 
to serve and to love and to give, to earn the right to speak the truth of Christ, not to go in Bible bashing and preaching at people, but to go in and love serving them and then point them to the God who has given us everything that we need and who promises that in the end, even death will meet its end when he returns. Let's pray. God, thank you for these words of Revelation 20 and 21. Thank you for your righteous judgment. Thank you for your restoration. Thank you, God, that you have a plan to bring all things to your good and right end, and that for those who are called according to your purpose, all things will work together for their good regardless of what it looks like in the here and now. And thank you, Lord, that you have history in your hands, that no one else determines the end, no one else determines where we're headed, but you've already set the path for us. And I pray, Lord, that as a church, as your followers, Jesus, we would be agents of your kingdom restoration in the world, that we would serve and love and give of ourselves just as you, Jesus, have given yourself to us. And so that as we do that, Lord, I pray we are faithful in pointing to you, the restorer of souls. Thank you, Father, for loving us even when we were unlovely. Thank you for befriending us even when we weren't your friends. Thank you for pursuing us in love even when we've been your enemies. And we pray, Lord, that you would keep and preserve us through all time. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.